Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Al Capone goes down as probably one of the most vicious criminals in American history. One article says, the infamous American crime, Tsar Al, quote, surface Capone, was once king of the Chicago Rackets, a Prohibition-era gangster. He ruled a multi-million dollar empire in the 1920s that was fueled by illegal booze, gambling, and prostitution. Capone is also suspected of being the mastermind behind the 1929 St. Valentine's Day massacre in Lincoln Park that left seven of his arch enemies dead. Capone's reign as ruler of Chicago's gainland ended in 1931 when he pleaded guilty to tax evasion and prohibition charges. After serving seven years and six months in federal prison, which included a stay at Alcatraz, Capone was paroled on November the 16th, 1939. By that time, however, he suffered some health problems and he went into seclusion and isolation on an estate near Miami, Florida, where he died of stroke and pneumonia on January 25th, 1947. Could you imagine that right now we took the leading criminals of our day and we unleashed them into society without any regard or any restrictions to the laws established by the federal, state, and local governments? Could you imagine what type of catastrophe, what type of horrible events would transpire? The crime would escalate in such a way we would see theft, we would see drug use, we would see all sorts of horrific things transpire on this earth. Well, I submit to you that as we think about a guy like Al Capone and some of the leading criminals of the American world... And if we unleashed them all at one time, with no regard to the laws, it would not even be a fraction of what's going to take place in Revelation chapter 9. You see, in, in, my, in my mind, I'm trying to convey to you a criminal invasion here in America. But in this chapter, what we see is a force that is unlike any criminal force that we've ever seen. Today, the title of my sermon is these three words, The Demonic Invasion. The demonic invasion. That is what's going on in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And let me just be frank with you today. If you do not believe Satan is real and demonic spirits are real, you need to reread the Bible. All you got to do is open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll clearly see that the Bible teaches that demonic spirits are alive and well in our world, not just in the days of Christ, not just in the days of old in the Old Testament, but in the days that we're living right now. And it, I believe it will be escalated in such a degree that our minds can't fully fathom what it's going to be like in Revelation chapter 9. 
As we think about this demonic invasion, I want to give you a summarization statement that's going to summarize these 12 verses. And really the thought that I want you to walk away with is this thought. God allows the demonic evasion to take place to warn the lost to come to Christ in faith. Let me say that again. Listen carefully. God allows the demonic invasion to take place to warn the lost to come to Christ in faith. So far, we've seen these six seals loosed, and the seventh seal unlocks these seven trumpets, and now we are in trumpet number five, and it's sounding. And why would God send judgment like this to the world? Well, the reason why God is sending judgment is because he is giving one final plea for the world to bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. You see, in the ancient culture that John lived in, the idea of Caesar being Lord, and they had to bow down and declare with their lips that Caesar is Lord. And as a person would come to faith in Jesus Christ, they knew that in their conscience, they could no longer declare that Caesar is Lord. And so they would stand in defiant of those orders and say, Jesus is Lord. And my friends, it's either in this life or the life to come, you will bow and you will declare with your own lips, whether you believe it or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My question that I've been racking my mind in this chapter, chapter 9, these 12 verses, is what is God teaching us from this coming demonic invasion? And I really just have two thoughts I want to share with you today. In verses 1 through 6, here's the first thought I want to share with you. About here's the first lesson of teaching that God is revealing to us here in Revelation chapter 9. God is in control and sovereign over the demonic invasion. God is in control and sovereign over the demonic invasion. I want you to understand this, that throughout the entire book of Revelation, especially from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 22, we see that God is seated on his heavenly throne. And we see that, that in chapter 4, God is sovereign over creation. In chapter 5, God is sovereign over redemption. In chapter 7, God is sovereign over salvation. And now in chapter 9, we can praise God that he is also sovereign over the demonic invasion. In fact, God is so sovereign over the affairs of darkness and the dark world of Satan that Satan is only allowed to do what God allows him to do. The demons of, of hell are only allowed to do the things that God gives them ability to do. And we see in Revelation chapter 9, God is thundering down that truth that God is sovereign over this future demonic invasion that's going to take place here on this planet in the days to come. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 9. The Bible says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw... A star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Let's read verse 2 also. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Let's pause. And here's what I want you to understand from verses 1, 2, and also let's read verse 3. And it says, And there came out of the smoke locusts, upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. 
These first three verses here reveal the thought that the demonic locusts are loosed by God's hand of direction. God is leading and directing and orchestrating these events to take place. God is sovereign over the demonic invasion. In fact, in verse number one, there's a lot of discussion amongst theologians and Bible scholars about who exactly the star falling from heaven is. Sometimes throughout scripture, we see a star as a representative of an actual star, like a planet or a, or a meteor or a comet or something out in outer space. But then at sometimes a star is a reference to some type of being. And we, 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 we see that today in our culture. We think of stars in the galaxies and we think of stars in Hollywood. Sometimes a star could be a reference to a star in outer space. And sometimes when we speak of a star, sometimes it could be like Michael Jordan, the star of the NBA. But in this passage, some would identify the star with Satan falling. And I would lean towards that is the case here in this chapter. I don't think we can be ultimately dogmatic because the Bible doesn't specifically say, but it is interesting that in Isaiah chapter 14 and in Ezekiel chapter 28, we read about the fall of Satan or Lucifer, one of the cherubims, one of the most beautiful created beings in heaven that God made. And we see that wherever you lean, if this is a, a, a Satan himself or just another angelic being, understand this, that, that angels and demonic spirits are created by God in a sense to accomplish his will on this earth. And we see that this is the case with this star that falls. Notice this word, fall. It is in a tense in the, in the original language here that means that it happened in the past and the action is continuing on to this very day, which is the reason why many would believe that this is Satan in reference here. And then the Bible says that to this angel that's being referenced or this star that is being referenced, he was given a key to the bottomless pit. John Wolvert, a world-renowned Bible commentator and scholar said that the Greek word for bottomless pit is found seven times in the book of Revelation. It is in verse number one, verse two, and verse number 11 in this chapter, and in two, one time in chapter 11, one time, or excuse me, two, one time in chapter 17, and two times in chapter 20. This word bottomless pit reminds us of the idea of hell. Now, throughout scripture, we see sometimes languages have limitations. And a limitation of our English language is that when we speak of hell, we are always speaking of one word, hell. But when you study the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for hell is sheol. Would you say that with me? Sheol. Like sheol. Say it again. Sheol. And then in the New Testament, we, we understand that the Greek Bible reveals three words that are translated as hell. You have Hades, say that with me, Hades. You have Tartarus, say Tartarus, Tartarus. And you have Gehenna, say Gehenna, Gehenna. So in the New Testament, we see that the connection of Hades, or hell, if you will, is the same connection of in the Hebrew Bible of Sheol. And it is the holding place for the dead, the grave. And in some respects, it is the place that Jesus referred to as the center of the earth where the wicked are abiding right now to one day be cast into the lake of fire. Gehenna is another Greek word that Jesus used for hell when he's preaching. And in the land of Israel, there's a place called the Valley of Hinnom. And in this valley, if you study this valley, you'll understand that in the Old Testament, they would go to this valley and they would sacrifice children to pagan gods in this valley. 
And time would go on, and due to the corrupt nature of this valley, the Jewish people decided to make it a dump. And so to this very day, it is a dump in the land of Israel. And it's a place that, that even in Jesus' time, they would say that this is a, the, the lowest of lowest places on the earth. And Jesus used that word Gehenna to reference where the Bible says that hell is a place that is the lowest of lows that any man or woman could ever go to, and nobody should desire to go there. And then in one time in Peter's writings, he uses the word Tartarus. And this is a reference to the abyss or the bottomless pit right here in Revelation chapter 9. You see, in, in Peter, as he's writing, he speaks about this place that these angelic beings who fell from heaven are reserved in chains to even this very day. So some fallen angels, who are now called devils, as the King James says, or demonic spirits, are now in a holding place because they sin in a great way, which I believe is a reference to Genesis chapter number 6, and time doesn't allow us to get into that today. But in Peter... And in Jude, we see that there is a special compartment in hell for these fallen demonic spirits that sinned on this earth. And here in this chapter, this star, or in some type of angelic being, maybe Satan himself, is given a key and goes and unlocks this place. And what comes out of this place is these locusts, or in other words, demonic spirits that have the appearance of locusts. Look at verse 2. The Bible speaks about how he opened this bottomless pit, and then smoke comes out of this place, and as smoke from a great furnace. There are times in the New Testament where the Bible describes hell as a furnace of fire, and here in the book of Revelation, we see just the case right here in this text. And then the Bible says that the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke, and here we understand that, that, that hell is a place of total, complete darkness you will not be able to see and especially in this spot. And then verse number three, the Bible says that, that, that after the smoke came, then comes these locusts, and they had the power of scorpions. One commentator said that this trumpet parallels the eighth plague of Egypt. In fact, in Exodus chapter 10, we read about how God sent down a plague to the Egyptian nation about locusts coming and swarming. Mass locusts come and eat up all the vegetation. We are also told from the months of May to September is the season of the locusts. And in the Middle Eastern area, we understand that, that these locusts can swarm and devastate crops in matter of minutes and seconds and hours. And so it is not unreasonable to conclude that John is saying five months, these locusts are going to come and devour the unbelievers. In fact, there's so many parallels with the land of Egypt to the book of Revelation. And God was thundering down his judgments on the land of Egypt so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians could come to faith in Jehovah God. And now we see that God is going to thunder down these judgments and these trumpets and these bowls and these, these vials and these seals so that these unbelievers can come to the knowledge that Jesus is Lord. Robert Thomas 
professor at the Master Seminary in Southern California, said the central Old Testament passage about locusts is Joel 1 and 2, which describes a locust visitation that serves as a harbinger or component of the day of the Lord. The fifth trumpet locusts similarly serve as part of end-time events, and locusts were also part of the diet of John the Baptist. The only way I could describe a locust to you right now is it is in the family of the grasshopper here in Virginia. So just imagine a swarm upon swarm of these locusts coming and invading. But in this case, in Revelation chapter 9, it is not grasshoppers and not earthly locusts. These are demonic locusts. And just imagine, we have no idea how many angelic beings there are. We can't number them. They are innumerable. And similar fashion for the fallen angels. We have no idea how many fallen angels there are, specifically the number that came down with Lucifer when he led his revolt to God. But what we do know is there will be masses upon masses that will invade this world from this abyss and bottomless pit in the days to come. The demonic locusts are loosed by God's hand of direction. God allows this to happen. He is orchestrating it to happen, and he is sovereign over this invasion because he wants people to bow to him and accept his good news of salvation. Now look at verse number four. Here is somewhat good news. In fact, this is the only glimmer of hope in this chapter. And as I read verse number four, here's the thought I want to also share with you about how God is in control and sovereign over the demonic invasion. The believers will have God's seal. The believers, excuse me, who have God's seal will have his protection. The believers who have God's seal will have his protection. Look at verse four. It says, and it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. Now let's pause right here. Because if you're a student of the Bible, you will realize that in chapter eight, one of the judgments was to destroy a third of the vegetation and all of the grass. So what does this mean here? The Bible says that if the grass, all the grass was already destroyed, why is this verse saying that they cannot hurt the grass? Well, understand this, that when John is writing, he is seeing a vision. And he says, all the grass. And so two ways to handle this. He's either seeing the, all the grass in his own perceived vision of the Middle Eastern area, or he's seeing all the grass of the world, of the planet Earth. Well, if he's referring to all the grass of that area, or if he's referring to the grass of the entire globe, understand this, that if this trumpet is five months in the making, then understand that these other trumpets may have periods of times that we don't know, and there could be a long period of time so that grass could regrow again after one of the previous judgments. But then it goes on to say, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. This is a clear reference to the 144,000 Jewish men in chapter 7. 12,000 from each of these tribes that God specifically seals to not just be shielded and protected from God's wrath, but also to be shielded and protected from the Antichrist persecution. And they will live through the tribulational period and they will populate the millennial kingdom. And here we see right here in chapter number nine, verse number four, that these ones who are sealed 
have a name in their foreheads. And we are told that name is the name of the Father in chapter number 14. Now, the question is this, at least that I had in my mind as I was studying this text, is are only the 144,000 people going to be protected from God's fifth trumpet judgment of these demonic locusts and this demonic invasion? Well, I think it is very reasonable to believe that if any person who knows Jesus Christ as Savior, because the Bible is clear that he says multiple times that he is not going to allow his church to experience his wrath, I think it's very reasonable to believe that if there are believers in this season of the tribulation period, God will also shield them if they're born again. But also it is possible that all those who have been saved have already been saved by chapter 9 and verse number 4. It is possible that all those who have been saved Speaking of the great multitude in chapter 7, they've already been saved and they've already been persecuted and dead. One commentator said this, those who have the seal of God include not only the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, but also the rest of the redeemed. This seal marks them as personally belonging to God and as such protected from the forces of hell. Understand this, that if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, even right now in your day, in your life, right now, this moment in 2021, in the month of June, this summer, that if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, God is going to shield you and protect you from the enemy and the darkness of this world. Now let's move forward in verses 5 and 6. So far, we understand that in this, these first six verses, God is in control and sovereign over the demonic invasion. The demonic locusts are loosed by God's hand of direction. The believers who have God's seal will have his protection. But now here is the sobering thought from verses five and six. The unbelievers who do not have God's seal will face his condemnation. The unbelievers who do not have God's seal will face his condemnation. Look at verse number five. It says, and to them it was given that they should not kill them. That is, these locusts, these demonic locusts were not allowed to kill the 144,000 sealed of God and perhaps even all believers who might be alive of that day. It says, but that they should be tormented five months. So, so even the people that they go around, they're not allowed to kill them yet even the unbelievers, but they are allowed to torment them for five whole months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. We don't have a lot of scorpions here in this part of the world. But I am told that generally speaking, a sting by a scorpion most of the time is not going to kill you unless you get some rare exception of a scorpion. And so here, the sting that these demonic spirits are going to be plaguing this world with is torment. Perhaps it's going to be mental torment. Perhaps it's going to be spiritual torment. Perhaps it's going to be physical torment. But whatever the case is, this will be torment that our world has yet to see. And then verse number six, this verse is, is, is mind-boggling. In those days, in the days to come that John is seeing, these individuals, the men and women who are alive that day, will want to die. The Bible literally says that they seek death. You know how Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God? Same word in the English Bible here. It says, seek death. These people, instead of seeking after God, they're going to run and want death. And the Bible says they won't find it. They will desire to die. And the Bible says death will flee from them. 
Does this mean that if those try to commit suicide, they won't be able to do that? I don't know. But at some point, they are going to seek death, and they will be unable to walk through the doorway of death. My friends, there is coming a day where all the unbelievers, the unregenerate, will stand before God at the great white throne judgment. They'll stand and give an account for everything they've said, everything they've thought, and everything that they've done. And in that moment, Jesus will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you, into everlasting fire. This passage, these first six verses should compel you and me to go into the highways and into the hedges and every area of our society in the Roanoke Valley and tell people to come to faith in Jesus Christ before it's eternally too late. Because judgment day is coming and there is a place reserved for all those demonic spirits, by the way. Matthew chapter 25 says that hell was prepared for Satan and his angels, not for any human being. God doesn't want anybody to experience that. In fact, Peter says that God is not willing that any should spend eternity in hell or perish. But he wants all to come to repentance. So these first six verses are a warning to the unbelievers of that day to repent and get right with God. And that is our message for right now in this age. In 2021, we are called to tell the world to repent of their sins and to get right with Jesus Christ, to change their entire mentality of what they believe about Jesus and to bow to his lordship, to believe that he is the savior and the Lord of all creation. God is in control and sovereign over the demonic invasion. My friends, God allows this demonic invasion to take place to warn the lost to come to faith in Christ. But now I want to share with you a second thought from verses 7 through 12. I'm thankful today that God is in charge. I'm thankful today that God is on his throne. I'm thankful today that God is in control and that God is the potentate sovereign king of not just heaven, but also this earth. And so the second thought I want you to understand is this. God is in control and sovereign over the demonic description. God is in control and sovereign over the demonic description. Not just this invasion, but also how they're described right here in this chapter. So far, it's been a little hard to wrap our minds around the events that's going to take place because this is heavy stuff. But now to read the description of these locusts makes it even more challenging to believe. And I want you to understand this. When you're reading the Bible... You need to understand that there's a threefold purpose of reading the Bible. Number one, we seek to see what God's word says. Number two, we seek to understand what God's word means. And number three, we seek to understand how God's word applies to our life today. And so here in this passage, and really just the Bible itself, if you were to just look at your Bible right now, would you just look at your Bible, or if it's a digital copy or a physical copy, this book that you're holding in your hand, this book right here is to be read like any other book or document you'd read in the world. Whether it's a magazine, whether it's a newspaper, whether it's a novel, whether it's a self-help nonfiction book, whatever the case is, you're to read this book just like any other book. That is, if you read an article in the Roanoke Times and they say something that's literal, you take it as literal. If they begin to tell a story, 
to tell you something true, you take it as it is. If they begin to tell you all this imagery and figurative and symbolic language, and then at the end they tell you all what it means, then you take it just that. So when we read the Bible, the hermeneutics and understanding of Bible is that we read the Bible like any other book, but we understand that this book is unlike any other book. It's God's Word. And so we're reading this passage. We need to understand that we believe the Bible should be taken literally when it's to be taken literally and figuratively when it's to be taken figuratively. And now as we come to this passage of scripture, this might shock you, but this, the description of the demonic locust is explained best as being figuratively. Notice here in verse number two. In fact, there's this idea of understanding the figure of speeches of the English language. Now, I am no English scholar. You can go ask my high school teachers about that or my professors in college. I didn't major in English. <laughs> I majored in theology and the Bible. But as we read here, we understand that figures of speech are important for the English language. And in verse, really the whole chapter here, at least what we're reading, is full of the figure of speech of a simile. That is using the term like or as to describe something. And look at verse number two. It says, as the smoke of a great furnace. Verse number three, it says, as the scorpions of the earth. And verse number five, it says, as the torment of a scorpion. And verse number seven, it says, like horses prepared unto battle. And check it out now. Horses display their warlike character. Verse number seven, it also speaks about on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold. Crowns depict them as conquerors. Verse number seven says, as the faces of men. Human faces show intelligence. Verse number eight, it says, As the hair of women, their feminine hair perhaps makes them fiercely seductive and attractive. Verse number eight, it says, As the teeth of lions, the teeth of lions show them to be destructive and hurtful. Verse number nine, it says, Breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron. Breastplates of iron make them indestructible. Verse number nine, it says, Sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots. Wings symbolize swiftness. And then verse number 10, it says, Tails like unto scorpions. The stings in their tails give them power to hurt. So we see this description is symbolic and figurative. In, in nature because John is looking out here. Now listen, I've read all the speculation about how this is modern day warfare and this, this might be a helicopter right here that he's seeing. This might be a, a, a giant um, uh, aircraft that he's, that he's seeing thunder down nuke bombs. Hey, listen, your guess is as good as mine about these things. But understand this, that John is living around 90 to 95 AD and he's seeing this vision of heaven that he's transported in his spirit to heaven and now he's looking out 2,000 plus years into the future and he's trying to describe these things that he's seeing with his limited Greek language. Just imagine if you went 150 years into the future and you tried to describe the events with the known vernacular of our day. It would be hard. And so in verse number 7, 8, 9, and 10, we see that this description is a description about these demonic spirits who take the form of what John at least calls locusts. And then he speaks about how they have power of, of scorpions. They have this long hair, these crowns of gold, the teeth like lion's teeth, breastplates and protection. They have wings and, and they have tails. And it all is here to remind us 
that these warfare terminology is here in verse number 10 to lead up to this, that their power was to hurt men for five whole months. You see why some people don't want to believe the book of Revelation? You see why some people don't want to believe the Bible? Because the Bible doesn't always talk about your best life now. The Bible often speaks about the judgment to come. And that if God is real and the Bible is true, then we have to live out the word that he said. But now check it out now. Let's look at verse 11. So far we, in this section, we've seen the description of the demonic locust is explained as figurative. But now check this out. In verse 11, the organization of the demonic forces is explained as a hierarchy initiative. Understand this, that if angelic beings have a level of rank and hierarchy, you have the cherubims and seraphims. You have, we know we have two archangels mentioned, Gabriel and Michael, and Jewish tradition says there's up to seven. Then we have regular angels. There's a, a system of rank. And so if there's a system of rank in, in the heavenly angels, then there is most likely a system of rank in the demonic spirits. And we see that Satan is the leader. And then you have other leaders underneath them. And then you have all of, you see, the, the fallen angels are angelic beings who left with Satan, and Satan uses them to accomplish his will on this earth, whereas God uses angelic beings to accomplish his will. But sometimes Satan doesn't realize this, but sometimes Satan, in hopes to think he's accomplishing his will, is in fact fulfilling God's will. But notice verse number 11. In fact, let me pause here. Satan thought he was going to try and kill the Messiah so that he could no longer live any longer. And so Satan thought he was going to destroy the work and sovereign plan of God, but in reality, he fulfilled the work of the sovereign hand of God. And so Jesus came and he died on the Calvary's cross. And there it was predicted all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that he would do so and that Satan's head would be crushed by the Messiah. And that he would not just stay on that old rugged cross, but there he'd pay the penalties for your sins and my sins and the sins of the world. And there he'd be placed in that borrowed tomb. And there he'd ra be raised victoriously so that he could offer life to all those who believe. And so Satan might think he's accomplishing his will, but in some ways he's accomplishing Almighty God's will, especially when Jesus was on the cross. And then this right here, we see that I believe that Satan in this particular scene, he is, he is going to, see, God is trying to call these people to repentance. But what Satan is going to do in this scene is he's going to lead his army of locusts, demonic spirits, to come in this world and to recruit men and women for his army so that he could train and, and lead an army to try to defeat Jesus Christ at the army of the battle of Armageddon. But we know that he's going to lose. But notice verse 11, it says, and they had a king over them. Now, some have tried to attribute this to Satan, but I don't think it is. It's not that major of a deal. But it says that they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. We know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So he's not locked up in chains. He will be in the millennium for a thousand years, and then they will all be thrown into the lake of fire. But here this says that, that there is an angel who is kind of their king over the ones in the bottomless pit. And it says his name in the Hebrew language, it says Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue, it's called Apollyon. 
One commentator said the name Abaddon is Hebrew for destruction. You can go read Job chapter 28 and Proverbs 15 and 27 and find a verse about that. Its Greek equivalent is Apollyon, meaning destroyer. In other words, it is one who destroys. Since the Roman Empire, since the Roman Empire, these leaders who were kind of the kings, they would sometimes declare themselves to be God incarnate. And Domitian, one of the leading persecutors of the early church, stood before his empire Rome and the known world and declared himself to be Apollo incarnate, one of the Greek pagan gods. And so it is very possible that here, when John is using this Hebrew word Abaddon and this Greek word Apollyon, it is a direct assault by God himself to attack the god Apollo. To say this, that there is no God beside me. That there is one God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And then verse number 12. The final thought I really want to share with you is the declaration of trumpet five leads to the final two woes that are even more destructive. You see, the first four trumpets in chapter 8 are an attack, an assault on the earth itself. Whereas the next three trumpets, specifically trumpet five and six, is an attack on mankind. Trumpet number six will unleash these four more angels and they're responsible to annihilate and kill one third of earth's population. Then trumpet seven, of course, brings us to the unleashing of the seven vials or bowls. But then verse number 12, it says, one woe is past. And behold, there come two woes more after. If you thought trumpet number five was bad, you have yet to see trumpet six and seven. There are movies that have really revolutionized this culture. And one of the series and sequels that has really gripped the hearts of America is the sequel called Star Wars. In fact, episode five is called The Emperor Strikes Back. It was released in 1980. And according to Saturday Evening Post, it is ranked as the second greatest sequel of all time. The budget was $33 million, and the box office sales were $550.9 million. They made good return on their investment. In this, the, the Star Wars movies, they often speak about the dark side. And as I think about this movie and other movies like it, I think many Americans are quick to believe in movies there can be a dark side, but in real life there is no dark side. But I want you to understand this, that from Genesis chapter 1 to the last word in Malachi, and from the very first words of the Gospel of Matthew to the final word and amen of the book of Revelation, the Bible is clear that Satan is real. There's dark forces of hell called demons, and they are going to invade this earth in the very near future. God allows this demonic invasion to take place to warn the lost to come to Christ in faith.
Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.